science fiction for? In the three-body problem, the Trisolarans have three of these near their world, and it's bad for them, so they're coming here. Matt. What's stars? Yes, stars or suns. That was LeVar Burton, also known as Jordy LaForge from Star Trek The Next Generation, asking a question from the three-body problem on last week's Jeopardy. And this is Rehydrate. This season, we'll be reading and discussing Leo Sashin's Death's End, the third and final part of the Remembrance of Earth's Past series. This is Season 5, Episode 4, The Storyless Kingdom, covering the first half of Part 3. We've previously talked about the three-body problem, the dark forest, and the hosts have a varying level of knowledge of this book and this series. My name is Dan, and I've read the entire series. This is Tim, and I'm new to the series and have only read up to this current week's reading. This is Amin, and I've read up to this week's reading, but also along with Dan and Talia, and this week's special guest co-host Priya, I co-host the Rehydrate Spoiler Cast, where we talk about all of the things for people who have not read all of this. So if you read the entire series or don't care about spoilers, you should check that out as well. And like Amin mentioned, we have a special guest this week as well, Priya. Welcome to the podcast. Hi, my name is Priya, and I've read all of the uh, books in the series, and I have a background in um, English literature, so I'm really excited to pick apart the fairy tales. <laughs> awesome. Thank you very much for joining. Thank you. Uh, so this week, we do have a lot of follow-up, more follow-up than we've ever had before. So I'm just going to dive into it. First thing is, I forgot to mention this last week, but there is another quote-unquote podcast uh, around the three-body problem, which is being released on Spotify, I think, or maybe it's just on Spotify. Anyway, but it seems to be um, a group that is publishing audiobooks as uh, kind of broken up into uh, individual episodes. It's not doing analysis on the book like we are. It's not really a competition, I guess, so we'll give them a plug. But it's cool that they're um, they're putting it out there, and I encourage people to listen to it. Uh, when I read The Three-Body Problem for the first time, I, I didn't actually read it. I listened to the audiobook, and uh, I think that's a pretty interesting experience. So uh, I'll put a link into the notes there. Um, another thing I found on Reddit was actually someone mentioned that the three-body problem reminding them, reminded them of a Futurama episode that's called My Three Sons. And I was like, how did I not remember that? Like the planet is literally called Trisol. <laughs> so I'm going to put a link to there, but I just thought that was funny that I, I forgot about that. Oh, uh, God, those are the water people, right? Yeah, the yeah water, he and, drinks the king. Uh, yeah, and he hydrates. And <laughs> I don't know how I mean, my whole brain is like around Futurama, so I don't know how I didn't put that together. Especially the planet's called literally Trisol. So anyway. Yeah, and that uh, episode probably predated the, you know, the publish publication of the first book even in china or something you know by yeah. like four years or so it probably came out in like the 90s i think i, I would guess like late 90s and i think uh, the book wasn't published until 2008 in china so so maybe lucian got his idea from uh from futurama <laughs> i've never watched futurama so i just read the um the summary of the episode and i was like what <laughs> <laughs> you should watch it it's great i know it sounds very interesting yeah did you watch the simpsons um a little bit like here and there uh, okay yeah so it was it's the same creator who created the simpsons he forked off a series that the it's a similar art style but like the and eh, kind of a similar humor style but it's, it's anyway it's set in space it's a three thousand or a thousand years in the future okay yeah and then like it's just kind of wacky adventures of, of a guy who hibernated actually it's another thing a guy hibernates oh, for uh for a thousand years <laughs> so yeah i would 
I mean, obviously, I fully recommend Futurama to all our <laughs> Got it. <laughs> Next thing is we got a couple of emails from some listeners. Uh, Frank, who has emailed us a bunch of times, had some really interesting thoughts. Uh, and he had a couple of long emails. And I wanted to kind of condense a little bit down and kind of think about one of those points. Because one of the most contentious points, like I mentioned last time, is the Chungshin's her responsibility for what happens based off of her not activating deterrence. And so I think Frank had some interesting thoughts here. So bear with me. It's kind of a long email, but I'm going to read it here. I always appreciate the discussion about whether Chungshin is to blame for the failure of deterrence. My take is that the blame is to be shared by both Chungshin as well as the world government who allowed Chungshin to be elected by the general public. The host had touched upon this, but I don't think the point was made explicitly. The successful storeholder should not even go into the step of asking the question, will I have the courage to push the button if the Triceleran's attack? By the nature of ultimate deterrence, if the enemy attacks, the battle is already lost. And whether he would summon the courage to push the button afterwards is merely whether he could salvage something out of a bigger failure to meet the strategic objective of maintaining deterrence. The right question here to ask is, will I be able to make the Triceratons believe that I will press the button if they attack? The better soldier holder can make the Triceratons believe this, and more likely deterrence will work. In this light, one might even say whether the sword holder will even push the button after the enemy attacks is irrelevant to the strategic objectives of peace. Like Frank, I really appreciate your stuff, but we have a lot of material to cover. But I, I just thought like uh, his perspective here around how she was already set up for failure by humanity, like just kind of being more lackadaisical and not really considering the Tricelerans to be a threat is like that. I think that lends even more that I think I still don't think she's at fault for, for that happening. I don't know. Does that lead any more? Does that add any more color to you guys or have any additional thoughts on it? Yeah, I don't think mine has changed at all. I, I think I said last episode that, again, I think she was just kind of put in an impossible situation. And that, given the information at hand, uh, it felt that, yeah, she was set up for failure and that it's like I would have made the same decision as her. So I think it also speaks to kind of like the state of being in a lull that people have fallen into during this period of time, um, kind of not knowing what sort of um, state of mind Loji has been in because he's been kind of hidden away from the rest of the world. So I guess they don't grasp the seriousness of what he had to do. So they can't possibly envision what they need what like qualities and traits they need in a new sword holder to sort of uphold the same level of um deterrence as what loji was offering and also when you start to play the blame game um it sort of just goes all the way back to well then the blame really lies with the a1g for broadcasting the signal in the first place so right yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, but that's a good point. Um, you know, how would they even know what to replace or what they're replacing? He's such a black box at that point. Like they really had no insight as to what sort of person would make an effective sword holder. Right. And they stop even believing that that, that position is even necessary. Right. Like <laughs> they're like, oh, we're we're good now. They're giving us cool movies, whatever. So Right. It's just a sim you know, to them it's just a symbolic position at that point. It's like the Queen of England or something, you know. Um, <laughs> we don't really need it. We just we just need someone to fulfill this role. We got also another email from another person who has emailed us a couple of times named Rob. Uh, and he's, he talked more about the um, four-dimensional uh, stuff and how they would film it. And he says, like you've said, some of the difficult stuff to put on the screen is definitely how to show the dimensionality to the audiences. But I also love to think about how they're going to do other parts of the book too. 
in book one at the end of Trisolaris, chapters are a big reveal. And I wonder how they're going to show these chapters on the TV screen. Like, does a bunch of Trisolarians communicate by light, flickering really fast with English subtitles? Are they actually going to show the aliens physically? Then in book three, you guys are going to read the fairy tales next, which I wonder how they're going to do it too. Having a bunch of government officials sitting around reading the story, which is with no visuals, would be pretty boring. Lastly, as a uh, spoiler, I'm going to skip that one. Those are some of the most interesting and best parts of the three books. And I wonder if they're going to be hard to film. I don't know. Maybe I'm just uncreative and thinking about how they could do it. If it's left out of the TV show, it'd be a letdown to me. Me too. Like, totally. If they don't have the fairy tale stuff in there and they don't do like some really outside the box thinking, it's going to be very, very disappointing. Uh, <laughs> I, I can't say how they would uh, just totally skip it, though. Yeah, like the four dimensional stuff, I think is going to be really, really difficult to film. And hopefully they're putting their best minds towards how they're going to do it. And, and Rob also mentions something that I've been kind of hesitant to bring back up i brought it back up on season one we we're talking about the the sofan chapters but i've been especially with the 40s stuff i was hesitant to bring up flatland again just to, to not introduce uh, dimensionality as a potential spoiler but now we're, we're kind of past that i recommend everyone watch uh flat or wa- read flatland and there's also a movie that is on uh, on youtube that that uh, dramatizes that that story yeah i think the story uh the, the fairy tale episode if they have an episode about it is i I can see that uh ending up being you know a a strange sort of bottle episode that uh ends up being uh the the highly controversial episode of the season yeah it's like you know (laughs) like some people love it some people hate it i'm starting to think about the uh, tv show the leftovers and there's this one episode called international assassin where the main character just goes on this strange you know uh (laughs) like head trip journey um, yeah. That is like completely disassociated from the rest of the the series, and I think of something like that for this, uh, like how they might go about doing this. Even then, the main character is still the main character in that one. It's just totally in a totally different setting. Sure. But yeah, yeah, I mean, I I love that whole show and then that episode specifically. So I would be happy if they <laughs> they if they pulled something like that. How did you think about it? Did you like it or did you not like it? Oh, that episode. Yes, I loved it. Yeah. I like the show, and I think this show that show is like experimental enough in some of how, how how it does things that it might be a good reference point for you know maybe how to do some things at least narratively, maybe not specifically with this tale, but this section, but this the story as a whole because it does have such a odd like lurching narrative. I was also thinking back to um, how uh, I think. I watched it so long ago, but in the one of the final movies of Harry Potter, sorry, I'm a big Harry Potter nerd. They have, uh, when they tell that the story of the Deathly Hallows, which is kind of like a fairy tale within the overall plot, they sort of um, depict the visuals as sort of like animation, but mm. like a really cool kind of animation. So like what I actually want to see is like, I want to see like real people play these roles of the characters in the fairy tales. But like, I can also envision a scenario where like there is some animation to depict some of the more mystical elements of the fairy tales that are hard, might be harder to depict it with like realistic elements, I guess, if that makes sense. That, that's a pretty realistic possibility. You know, now they mentioned it, making, making it like an anime style or just like, even though it's specifically because it's a fairy tale, like, a, you know, animation style is, you know, makes more kind of sense thematically, I think, for for those. I hope they do it also in, in live action, but I could see fairy tales, the animation working for the fairy tale section. 
Yeah, almost like a Kill Bill type thing. The enemy. Yeah, I thought about that too. <laughs> the, yeah. In fact, I also rewatched that movie or the, recently, and there are some odd uh, like parallels I drew to the narrative style of this too, where it's just like there's a lot of uh, in Tarantino's movies in general take these strange sojourns, you know, sometimes mm. just just to depict this part you know like the animated part in you know kill bill like it's not entirely necessary for the story and he doesn't give any any of the other people that the bride is hunting down the same like screen time but for whatever reason just almost seems like on a whim just decided to have this animated sequence and sometimes like i kind of feel parallels to the story here where the narrative pauses and it kind of focuses on these things that yeah i get you it's a yeah it's like kind of like side stories right just like world building side stories yeah yeah just kind of like yeah it's it's kind of inserted into the narrative at strange times by the way when you guys um referred to i think in a past podcast you said that you envision at this point luigi as the character from Kill Bill, um, yeah. her, ma- her master, her teacher. Um, I was like, oh my gosh, that's exactly how I envision him too. That seems to be like the unanimous like way people see Luigi. It seems. I, I, yeah, I can just see Luigi like you know like flick, flicking his beard, you know. Yeah. Like a- <laughs> That's so spot on. (laughs) All right. Well, let's get into the summary for this very long, consequential part of this story. Humanity tries to get back to normal after the events of the Great Resettlement, and Chungshin hibernates for five years to give time to restore her vision. During that time, AA rapidly builds up the business. During the intervening years, humanity starts to question the validity of the dark force itself, and thinking that the Trislayers might be suffering from delusions of cosmic persecution. That thinking is quickly reversed as Earth sees one of the stars of Trisolaris get hit with a photoid attack and destroys Trisolaris itself with only one one-thousandth of the population able to survive. Sofan invites Chengxin and Luo Ji to tea at her house again. During the now famous conversation of the way of tea, Sofan reveals the dark forest strikes are done in the most economical fashion. For example, on Trisolaris, no reconnaissance was done and the attacking civilization just used the power of its own star against its own system. Escape is the only means of survival. During the conversation, Sofan has to be careful about what information they're willing to give out, but out of respect to Loa Ji, she agrees to answer one question entirely truthfully. Loa Ji asks if there's a way to broadcast a cosmic safety notice, to which Sofan responds, yes. While humanity splits into factions on how to send such a safety notice, Chengxin becomes despondent to the point where she contemplates suicide. Sofan has another message for her that will change the course of history. Yun Tian Ming would like to see you. Chengqin travels to outer space for the first time for the meeting to be conducted over real-time video, video communication via Sofan. She is warned that if there's any unacceptable conversation topics or recording devices, the Trisolarians will, will destroy the ship that it, she is on. When they finally meet, Chengxin is surprised to see Yun Tian Ming as a healthy-looking farmer, thanks to the seeds that she sent along. Chengxin tries to extract what information she can, but the Trisolarians quickly warn her and realize that she's not going to get any actionable information. It is then that Yun Tian Ming suggests that they remember the fairy tales that they used to tell each other, despite the fact that they only met in college. Tian Ming goes on to tell an elaborate story about the storyless kingdom, where a princess is said to take on the throne, but her brother seizes power by having his painter paint his family into the paintings to make them disappear from the kingdom. The princess is protected by her aunt and an army captain as they make their way to see her older brother stranded on an island that is separated by a sea with dangerous fish. They make their way to the island using magical soap from the faraway land of Her'er Shigen Moshigen to mollify the fish. 
The prince and princess return to the castle to view their brother, and the princess takes the chance to travel to the world while her brother rules the kingdom. Of course, the fairy tale was wholly invented by Yun Tae Ming as a means to disclose information vital to the survival of humanity, wrapped in metaphors of a fairy tale as to not raise suspicions of the Trisolarians and protect both Changxin and Tian Ming. Humanity tries to decipher them, but they ultimately cannot come to an agreement on their meeting, so instead they embark on a new project to try to save humanity, the Bunker Project, whereby they intend to build city-sized ships behind Jupiter and beyond that will protect the people from a photoid attack towards our sun. Another item of kind of follow-up was a question for Amin. So Amin, last time you had said, I'm interested in this spectacle, but not so much as the characters anymore. So I feel like this part, especially with the meeting between Cheng Xin and uh, Yan Tian Ming, was very impactful. And, you know, like it had me really invested in those two characters and just like the the circumstances around that meeting and all like the the external concerns that put around them. So I guess, the, did you feel also that impact of that characterization or you still don't really care about these characters? No, I guess I don't care about the characters that much more than I did before. I thought the... I thought the construct of the green and yellow lights while they're talking, I thought that was interesting. I don't know that they necessarily connected, and honestly, I didn't care if they connected or not. I did like the the mechanism of using the fairy tales to to impart information back to humanity. I don't think it was specifically about her. She just mm. happened to be the vessel for it. And so, no, I guess I don't care about the characters anymore. I thought the I thought. I was more invested in the characters of the fairy tales than I was these two characters still. Um, hmm. so. so you don't, you don't care if like the, like you're not invested in the story of the idea that they're actually going to meet up again or no, if they I, could meet I, up again. I, I don't care. I care. <laughs> <laughs> I would say I care too. Yeah. But yeah. <laughs> but to what end they, they were barely friends in college. They talked once and now we don't know if he's actually a being or just what his state is now. I'll say I think I care about their their characters meeting up again only because like, yeah, they didn't really know each other previous to that. But like a lot of people don't know each other until like a very like big event happens in their lives. And this event just happened to be like <laughs> he died and she shot, she shot his brain into space. Right. Um, but then like she's pretty much constantly thinking about him since then. Uh, and then obviously like he'd always been kind of obsessed with her. So I don't know the idea of them like meeting up uh, over like this huge space of both distance time and whatever the hell else is happening out there. Like is, I don't know. I'm interested in that. It worked for me and you know, I'm not invested in them as like a couple and I don't think they're ever going to be reunited again is my prediction at this point, given what a kind of sad sack character he was, there's just a bit of a, a melancholy and a bit of like tragedy i think to it yeah this is i mean this is probably the best character moment you know in this book so far in a series that's not particularly uh filled with great character moments at least you know in my opinion so you know maybe it was a low bar to cross but uh I did like this part. And uh, again, I don't know what Yun Tiangmin's fate is from here on out. Like, maybe we just never see him again. Um, but I wouldn't mind if that was, was the case and that would be a kind of a nice melancholy send-off for him. But do you care if they meet again? Like, Well, no, not in particularly. Like, I think this would be most effective as 
if they never did, you know, meet again and like kind of emotionally, I think it would be kind of almost hackneyed at this point if they were somehow reunited and, you know, young Ten Mean comes, like, I think it's like he's better left as just this uh, slightly tragic character that manages to come around and uh, be impactful to the story and have one last moment with, you know, his, uh, you know, his one-sided lost love. <laughs> How do you feel about uh, Tian Ming in general? Like we we had an exercise on the spoiler cast a couple episodes ago about who we think is the heroic person, um, you know, who's the hero of the story, who's the villain of the story, and I I, I picked up on somebody else who had mentioned on Reddit that I think uh, Tian Ming is maybe the 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 hero of this story, where he went through probably great personal peril, like uh, to impart these fairy tales. Like there's probably a lot of I I perceive there's a lot of danger on his end for you know if the trisolarians like did find that he was presenting actionable information to to the to the humans uh, via chungshin that they they probably they probably would have killed him or done something otherwise terrible they said they're only going to harm chungshin but you know who knows um so i had always considered him to he has like this really long plan he like made up these fairy tales he published them he tells like trisolarian children these fairy tales uh, and so, you know, and it's all in the, in the hopes that he can one day impart this kind of cosmic knowledge, um, wrapped in metaphors to humanity, knowing that the Trisolarians aren't going to be okay with him telling them explicitly what's going on. I feel like they would have to have like a really, really horrific punishment lined up for him, uh, because they essentially saved him for what already seemed like a pretty horrific fate for me. It's his <laughs> brain floating in space and you had, you know, you're not sure whether it's like conscious or not. Like that seems worse to me. I don't know if he has like a lot of lot to risk about this. Cause like he got a sort of second chance to be something or have something, you know, some sort of existence. I think the way that um, his character is depicted, especially in his feelings towards um, Shang-Chin, is that the greatest punishment for him would be like having to live on knowing that he imparted information to Shang-Chin that caused her to be like blown up by the Trisolarans. Like, I think that would be the greatest. Like, I don't envision the Trisolarans punishing him simply because he seems to be their greatest tool in a sense to understanding and deciphering humanity. If they were to um, kill Shang-Chin for, you know, any information that she would, she would have been given would, would die with her. The only person who would come to harm to my mind was always um Qingxin. What's remarkable to me about Yun Tianming is that you kind of forget about him after the beginning. Um he might be in the back of your mind, but you're not really thinking much about him. And then suddenly when he makes this um reappearance, you as the reader can surmise how much like character development has occurred for for him. And the, the the amount the amount of things that are left to your speculation kind of um like it's up to you whether you can paint him in your mind as like a heroic figure because um Chingxin also wonders like the extent to which he may have played a role in the attack that happened the droplet attacks so like it's it's really up to you how you want to paint him but clearly a lot of character development has happened for him because he's no longer this this kind of self-pitying character that he was in the beginning and you, uh, that reminds me, you read Redemption of Time, right? Or you read part of it? Yeah, I read like three-fourths of it. Okay. <laughs> uh, specifically so, three-fourths. 
<laughs> yeah. So we'll we'll I'll put a spoiler warning and in, in this thing for Redemption of Time uh, in the chapter markers here. But I remember reading something online. I haven't read it, um, but I remember reading something online where there was a theory that Yuan Tan Ming was actually the one responsible for all the art that was sent to. Um, yeah, that's to, from that book. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So uh, I I think we we talked about it in the spoiler cast a little bit and. I think that's interesting, but Talia also made a good point that that kind of cheapens it too. Like <laughs> it's kind of cooler that the Tristellanians are able to emulate the human culture and kind of kind of trick them into thinking that we're cool now rather than just using Yun Tian Ming. You know what constantly bothers me about the Tristellarians? Not necessarily bothers, but kind of like just kind of um, puts me kind of makes me feel tossed back and forth in understanding them is kind of like the, at moments they're very literal. They're very like they can't understand metaphors. They they couldn't lie until recently. Um, and they're very like, you know, to the point. Yeah. But then at the same time, like they can create art and they can they but they can create art but then they can't decipher yun tianming's fairy tales so it's, <laughs> it's like hard to it, it's almost like um at times i wonder is is lucian using the trislarans however he sees fit whatever works within this within the kind of point that he's trying to make like they mm. can be dumb if you want them to be but they can be really really smart if you want them to be like that's how it feels at times <laughs> It can also be that like they're not a monolithic society, right? Like we already had like one instance of that with the pacifist getting the initial message, right? right? And and not and not thinking about tristellar society, but thinking about like the perfect earth, right? And so like maybe there's just different factions of people who like humanity more than others or are able to, you know, they're just individuals. So it could be could be explained that way. Yeah. Well this conversation has highlighted one of the stranger things about this uh series and the way it progressed uh for me um in that we are halfway you know more than now more than halfway into the third book and we've had very little uh like very little more you know has been revealed about the trisolarians um i i think i expected this you know eventually to be like a a meeting of two different alien races in a much different way than it has progressed like Mm. i realized um there there was a small section where they uh talked about the author explained how they reproduce where they like meld together and then like two like eventually like break off into uh, three or four other trisolarans and it just occurred to me like this is the only other bit of like xenobiology we've gotten about the trisolarans since the first book you know in the whole hydrate rehydrate thing so we you know we still at this point don't know what a trisolaran looks like anything you know anything about them and at this point i'm not sure if we're ever going to get that and if like my expectation of where this this series was going to go is like completely off base but yeah like as priya mentioned there's there's still at this point kind of a cosmic mystery in a in a way that like I was not expecting. And for all of the big you know sci-fi ideas that uh, the author likes to explore in these books, that we've never really gotten much more on the Trisolarans except in this very kind of distanced uh, like fashion. So fun being your only real like proxy, you know, insight into them. Now we see you know Yun Tang Ming and. Like maybe he's, you know, through through these fairy tales trying to impart something else about them as as well. Although I think it's, I think, well, I'm sure we'll get into it, but I think the fairy tales are more about the cosmic situation as a whole than the Trisolarans themselves. But yeah, it's just, it's just surprising to me 
Like yeah. at, at this point, we still know so little about the Trisolarans, and now they're off to parts unknown. So, would you prefer to see them in, uh, described physically, or not prefer to see them described physically? Like, which which outcome I mean, would be better for you? I I don't know at this point. I'd have to finish the series and you know just see where he's going with it. But uh, mm. but that was a bit of a hook for me, at least more early on. Like especially you know maybe at the beginning of the previous book. Um, yeah. My expectations for the series have changed now, but that was a bit of a hook for me, as and I'm sure I brought it up a couple times as I was curious to see what a Trisolaran actually was and what they look like, and maybe that's just not the point of the narrative at this point. Yeah. Well, we'll see what happens. I'm sure, like there might be some readers who, um, like I, you and I, uh, Dan, talked about this um, in the interview series that uh episode that we did where um you were asking me like how I read the books because I'm not like a I, I love science and I love sci-fi but I read it more as like a a reader of like literature so from a literary perspective more so and um a lot of this book can be like a lot of hard science so um and especially you see that um I was kind of like scoffing a little bit when he um in the in the part where he describes the annihilation of um Trisolaris the sun and there's like two pages where he just describes exactly what happened scientifically <laughs> to Trisolaris and he seems to really revel in these types of descriptions of something being destroyed <laughs> and the scientific forces that cause it to um completely and utterly be annihilated so it's like the Mercury thing from uh, from Diaz too. He talked a lot about that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So he he seems to really love putting the science in there wherever he can. And so I was looking um, at this NPR review of the book series, and it says that it um, the fairy tales within this uh, book really show off Lou's uh, virtuosity, not to mention some sparkling, much-needed contrast with the heavier sci-fi tone of the rest of the work. And this really resonated with me as a more literary reader of the books, um, and it was definitely welcome and sort of enchanting, like reading um, Grimm's fairy tales. And then I was looking, I was doing some more research on the internet and apparently Grimm's fairy tales are very widely read in China. Mm. So I, I can imagine, like, I wonder if, like, he was influenced by, you know, this this sort of, like, childhood uh, fairy tale thing that he himself may have been influenced by as a kid. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, so I, I, I wonder how the rest of you feel about the fairy tales. Like, what did they add value to your reading experience or, like, detract from it? I enjoyed the fairy tales. I thought it was, um, I agree. I think, I think he does a good job of shifting his tone when he's writing it. It, you know, it feels more like a fairy tale than it does a science fiction writer trying to write a fairy tale. So I give him credit for that. And I thought the stories were, again, engaging and interesting enough for, I was without even the context of, you know, trying to find the underlying meaning of everything. I thought it was, a really good it was a good set of stories like i i enjoyed the context i enjoyed the different types of characters and all of those kinds of things so yeah i i i liked it it was it was a welcome diversion or distraction or whatever the word is from the rest from what else whatever else was going on so was the context of the stories make made them more interesting you think or no i don't the, the... i don't think that was it i i think okay. i think the context so i actually read it I read them once and I went back and skimmed them just because I wanted to see 
from the spoiler cast, I think I kind of know what the fairy tales are, are leading towards. So I just wanted to see if I could pick up on those clues. Otherwise, yeah, I, I guess I didn't really, the first time I read it, I didn't think of it in the context of, of the rest of the, the novel. Uh, I meant more in the context of specifically, like, we know by the time we read them that they're, they're metaphorical. They're trying to uh, give more information. Did you read it more critically when you first read it? when you're like looking for clues or did you just read them as stories? I, I just read them as stories. Then I went back yeah. to see if I could, if I could pick out the clues or the hints or, or if there were any, any leading anything I might've missed the first time. Cause the first time I just read them just like fairy tales, I guess yeah. like I would a grim story. I think that's kind of nice, actually, because um, even uh, I think there's a moment where Cheng Xin says that she's trying to memorize these stories and she's really trying to like process them in her brain. But she finds herself at times being so enchanted by them that she just wants to like listen to them as like stories for what they are. And I feel like that's the effect that it has on the reader, too, at times. Like at times I was like, try, try to turn your brain off and stop like trying to figure out the metaphors. Just read it for the experience. <laughs> yeah. So you guys have touched on a point that that I wanted to bring up about these this section, which I did really enjoy. And as you know, Priya brought up before that he likes to like describe certain parts of the book and you know and in, in, in the narrative in excruciating scientific detail. And then at other points, he you know we go through these like long, almost like newsreel type sections where it's he's just like recount. You know, from not from the perspective of any character whatsoever, but we are just getting an overview of what humanity is going through for centuries or something, and, and the narrative seems very, very pulled back. And then we kind of stop and then focus on this kind of very intimate character moment, and he has this opportunity to kind of like let his his humanities classes shine here uh, in the form of this fairy tale, and I really liked it. My one frustration is that I kind of wish we didn't have this little inter, basically this interstitial chapter between um, the encounter between uh, Yun Tingming and uh, Ching Xin, and then this chapter that basically tells the reader that these are uh, metaphors. Um, you know, it says that you know, okay, the the groups you know stop to sit and read read these fairy tales that might save human civilization. And I think it would have been much more effective for me as a reader is if he had gone into the fairy tales and recounted the fairy tales in that chapter as Shang-Chin was hearing them. Um, because like, I think it would have been more interesting for me as the reader to, because it is a very obviously a metaphor and some sort of cipher for what is going on in this in the solar system or in the universe and i think it would have been more interesting for me to like come to that realization as i was reading them than to have that laid out for me before that so that i was like reading them kind of like looking for these things i don't know if you, you know how you guys felt about that but i would have maybe flipped these chapters here and that you know like chungshins and the other humans in this uh, in this case you know processing of them kind of came after you actually getting to read the tales i'm just curious as well how, how you guys thought about that no i can i can see that i guess like i i kind of like the contract as as it's set up only because like i like the idea of like all of humanity kind of coming together and trying to decipher the fairy tales that could happen that could happen also uh, afterwards but i also like the part of her um of Changshin like trying to like remember the fairy tale like in her head and like the memorization part of it uh, and then like the the kind of simple 
uh, deception that she tries to, that they try to do. And like when she gets back from the ship, they're like, ah, well, he tried, you know, what can you do? And then they go into the sofa so fun room and go, all right, now tell me the story. <laughs> you know, uh, I thought that that part was really cool. Yeah. I mean, I think they, I think they could have done all of that. I'm just really kind of like from the reader's perspective, the sequence of events here in which it's unlit laid out for the reader. Like, I think yeah, like these fairy tales, like say, you know, the, like both would have, I think sort of enhanced that character moment between them. Like, you know, there might be like, a, say that chapter, you know, that chapter ends with, uh, you know, Ting me going into these tales and then you get to read the tales and then you read about like Cheng Xin's like, um, processing of that and you know her the way she took those like i just like as the reader would have like appreciated that kind of like being able to realize for myself that these were metaphor and i I think that would have been a cooler way for me to experience them than to be told they were metaphor then you're getting to read them with that context and it's not a it's just a, a minor minor complaint that i have I think I read somewhere that the reason the stories are placed in the book exactly the way that they are is one way that the author kind of gets around the problem of a character of like, it's it's more of like a narrative device where if you have a character telling a story to another character where other, like now he has created characters who are going to say things to one another and he is a character within the story it makes it very complicated to create that structure in real time. If that makes sense, like what I'm saying, like Tian Ming said this, and then he, um, like it kind of pulls you out of the story. If you go back to Tian Ming in the middle of the story, it seems to be a way for Xijin to kind of avoid some of that structural confusion that, that I was reading a review of it and that's, that's what the review said, and I kind of agree. Well, I think, you know, we do go into this, you know, situation, um, you know, with them meeting that with the expectation and the context that this is supposed to be some sort of exchange of information and it is very dangerous and we have that we have that context. So I think that would have been enough context to go into the actual accounting of the tales of themselves to realize, oh, you know, for the reader to go, oh, like a light bulb turned on their head, you know, in, in the middle of reading these that this is how he's doing it. Oh, cool. You know, rather that like I, I, I still think it would have worked personally and been a little more effective for me. I think it's definitely more cinematic, you know, like when they actually do film the this part, if they ever get to it. Uh, I think uh, they'll almost certainly do it that way where, you know, they have this meeting and then all of a sudden, like, we shift to the world of the fairy tales as they're telling it. Sure. Um, yeah. I, I, and then you kind of have the, yeah. Like, yeah. But maybe this, the structure of the book just might maybe lends itself to having it it's separate. I don't know. Like, I could I could really see either way. So to for me, I mean, I've said this a couple of times. I don't think I said it on the main show, but like this part is my absolute favorite part of the entire series. Like there's other really cool stuff that happens uh, later on in, in this book too. But like the, the melding of like the super deep metaphors uh, plus like the character moments here, just like was mind blowing when I first read it. I, I also like how the fairy tales themselves are. I think Priya also mentioned this, like they're, they're fair they're written in fairy tale style but like they're very scientific on the, the as metaphors you know and then like the way they kind of decipher them is is also very scientific they have like this big board with like and they kind of throw in some like english people just to, like at the last moment is like an afterthought they're like ah bring us english people they can help us out that they they initially thought like they probably had like you know generals and 
you know, another scientist trying to decipher it. Anyway, like this, this part, like, you know, like I've mentioned more, it's my absolute favorite part of it, of the the whole series. I love the English people being just an afterthought. <laughs> yeah. And and also like, the, remember that they're saying like, oh, Tian Ming, he has an undergrad. He's not that smart. <laughs> and that too, um, I think I also love the fact that like when they're in the Sofan free room decipher, trying to decipher, it's the, it's the literary person who gets up first and they're like, sorry, but it's impossible to decipher. <laughs> like from what I know, you can't decipher metaphors that could have multiple meanings simultaneously and are ambiguous enough that they could actually mean anything. <laughs> right. Especially if, you know, it's something as, as, as consequential as like the safe, the saving of the universe or the solar system from a, from a, extraterrestrial strike <laughs> right that that brings me to the next point that i had written down here which was that like the book uh i was reading a review and um it's it brings up the subject of being genre savvy genre savvy probably would indicate like you're looking at all of this from the perspective of like sci-fi and um the book's mocking of people is unable to presume or unravel multiple levels of metaphor seems like what one says when they know the answer to their own riddle and can't figure out why literally no one else can figure it out and asking people to unravel multiple metaphorical layers is tough especially if your poets aren't physicists and your physicists aren't poets. Yeah. <laughs> Which is like the crux of the issue with these fairy tales, right? Yeah. Yeah, the um the, the post-processing chapter after this, you know, where where he goes into how people are attempting to decipher this, uh was kind of a relief for me because I you know, at the end of re you know, the reading these fairy tales, like I had my ideas, but I was asking myself, am I supposed to know like like, does he expect me to know what's going on here? And it was kind of a relief for me to, you know, for him to say, uh, no, because the top minds are, um, are on this and they have, they have not been able to decipher it either. So like, I was, I was wondering at that point, if I was, as the reader was supposed to like, be able to figure out what was going on here and what the metaphors meant. Um, so yeah, yeah totally he gave me that confirmation right away. Right. <laughs> so I appreciated that. <laughs> Yeah, I really wanted to understand them, but like I definitely did not, and you know I still don't. I mean, I we have a bunch of notes that we'll go over later um, about like our ideas and stuff I've collected online, but like there's no like one true document of like this means this and that means that, and yeah, I think oh, that. Oh wow, that's to me that's almost <laughs> to me that's almost a spoiler because I'm not sure, you know, like I'm wondering if like my expectation for the rest of this book is like do we do we learn that or do we figure that out? So I'll say we learn more. I won't get into, okay. I mean, like we learn more than we think that we know right now, but like, I won't okay. get into what or, or that stuff, but like, I'll, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I'll, I'll also say that one moment that I loved is where um, the literary, literary analysis person who kind of throws his hands up in the air says, but I will say one thing that he's really good. Um, he has a really great imagination. He's really good. Uh, he's constructed the story really well. Almost felt like Lucy Shin giving himself a little pat on the back. <laughs> that was my exact <laughs> thought, right? <laughs> yeah. There's like this yeah. meme that people always post on the Reddit one of like Barack Obama like pinning a pinning a medal on himself. <laughs> so, like that's like Lucy Shin talking about how good his fairy tales are in, in the context of the book. I mean, can you imagine if you're like a sci-fi writer and you just like wrote these like this fairy tale and you're you're just like, oh, my God, did I really just do that? I, I like I deserve <laughs> to give myself a little bit of credit within the text itself. <laughs>
So yeah, like one of the main things about the fairy tales is it's all wrapped up in, uh, you know, trying to decipher Louis G's original question of the cosmic safety notice, right? So there's a lot of interesting stuff that happens around that. I, I like, again, like just humanity being dumb and like misinterpreting like how they're going to do it. Like some of their solutions are like, let's all be farmers. And then like, no one's going to th- th- think we're dangerous or let's make everyone dumb, except the people who are making the the nano uh, suppressors, of course. And then the, the automated self-destruction. Like if we get too smart, we're going to just blow ourselves up. Like anyone in the universe is going to like look at, I mean, like the whole thing Sofan says is like, they don't care about you. They don't care about your planet. It's all about economics. Like they just use the most like energy efficient thing and they just throw a photoid at your sun and then it explodes and then they don't have to worry about it. They don't even look at you. I, I think it leads to like an interesting question. Is like, is there any possible way that you could uh, broadcast to the universe in given the nature of the dark forest that I think we now all can agree that is true, or at least in the context of this book is true, right? As given that Trisolarance was destroyed like pretty quickly after the broad, the coordinates were were sent. Like we only saw it a little bit later because of the, this, the took four years for the light to get to us. But is there anything that, I mean, I guess it's really only a question for Tim because well, maybe as a spoiler later, but like, is there any notice that we could broadcast to the universe saying that like, we're not dangerous that you can think of? No, honestly. Yeah. I, 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 yeah, I don't really have an answer for that. Um, yeah. I don't know. I don't really have a good answer for that question. I don't know, you know? Yeah. I, I don't think anyone knows, right? That's the, that's the problem. And it, it, it might not be, it might not be knowable because just given the dark forest nature, like any noise that you make is going to be suspect. And like, they have that, you know, the change of suspicion thing, like, well, you said you're not dangerous, but how do I know you're not lying? So I'm just going to destroy you just because it's easier. Um, so I think those kind of things are at odds, right? Like there's, there's not really a solution there. Yeah, I mean, we just don't know the nature of it. And I, that's what I'm assuming at this point that the fairy tale is, is trying to clue in humanity to some aspect of or the, the nature of what's going on in the dark forest or the, the, the universe at a more macro level, you know, beyond the conflict between the Trisolarans and, and, and Earth. So like... My prediction is that it's what the rest of this book is about. And yeah, at this point, I don't know exactly what parts of the of the fairy tale are meaningful and actually communicating that here. But yeah, I mean, I think I, I think there's something more going on. Our kind of low level understand, you know, like metaphor of the dark forest that is like that's what we have to figure out but as to what what that is. I don't know. I think one thing that's interesting is that Sofan, when she's asked, you know, what how that could work it, like the only thing she's mentions is, is escape right and the, but then humanity always like puts that down saying you can't you know and that's that crime against humanity and it leads to a whole bunch of political implications well she talks about how it's also very econ- you know how they blew up troy solaris is very economical so yeah it's you know it, at this point has me you know thinking that there's not necessarily an intelligence behind it or the mechanism that blows you know that destroys solar systems is some sort of unthinking like security system that maybe you know was obviously put in place by intelligent beings but is not operating on any intelligence like it's an automated system which Mm. you know makes it scarier in some ways and maybe also defeatable for other reasons so i also wonder why trisolaris is so cagey about giving us any information like is it just animus between 
them from us to broadcasting the coordinates of their world, or is there more yeah, danger? Like, that was my thought as well. Like I don't like why do they care at this point? They're yeah, you know, they're they're off. You know, why do they care? And if they cared so much, why would they let Yun Tiang Min in on it? You know, or why would they, you know, educate him in, in in such a way that he'd even have dangerous information to give? Yeah, yeah, because like when he's doing the talk, like he even like even simple stuff like, oh, the soil comes from meteorites. Like the Trisolarians, like, uh, no, <laughs> don't don't talk about that. And like, if there's any like, and they start talking about like the pipes above him, and it seems like he's on a ship or something, uh, and they're like, no, that's the yellow light there. So yeah, they're they're very careful about the. I guess they're giving any information about them. So that's interesting why they, why they would still do that. I mean, so also speaking of the question, I mean, maybe you guys will also have an answer for this, but, you know, Lua Ji has, gets the chance to answer the one true question that they're going to answer. And his question is like, can we broadcast this cause of safety notice? And the answer is yes. Is there any better question you guys could have thought of um, that gives a yes, no, or I don't know answer? Honestly, no. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's probably like I think it's like I have so much faith in Loji at this moment. Like he is like the brains. Ever since he figured out dark forest theory, he can do no wrong. <laughs> so I feel like he asked the most important question of all. And um it also brings me back to like um we were talking about before. Um, where it's like, it almost seems like the more impossible the problem, the wilder the theories become on how to solve it. So I feel like he sort of set Earth up for that dilemma in asking that question. But I feel like that that is the question to ask if you're told that you're only going to get a yes, no, or I don't know answer. Yeah, I wonder how he even came up with it, right? Like, I mean, I guess sitting, sitting facing a wall for 60 years, like you think of a lot of questions that you would ask them. <laughs> um, but yeah, like uh, maybe it's like all within context, but yeah, it's very... Yeah, it's, I, I can't think of a, a, a better question either, especially given the parameters of, yeah, you can only get yes, no, right, or no answer. All right. Well, the one other note that I had that I was just as I was reading it, uh, you know, talking about like kind of long explanations of uh, scientific concepts I thought was cool. And to me personally, maybe it won't be so interesting to, to listeners or, or to to watchers or readers is just the the process of Chungshin uh, making your way uh, to... Um, you know, through the space elevator to the ship and just kind of getting explanations of like what this technology actually looks like. The Also the parts where she's going on to the, the terminal station, she's kind of walking through the different rings and the different gravity of the different rings. And they talk about like how the ships kind of launch out from the edges, but it's holding in the, the atmosphere. I thought that, that stuff was all really cool. Reminding me of the sequence from 2001, where you know he takes the ship up <laughs> to the to the station and then takes the the, sh the ship over to the moon and then the the rover on the moon. And I love that stuff, and I could you know I could stand for a one hour montage with uh, classical music playing behind it of Chongqing making that journey. Yeah, it's good uh, space logistics and you know things about space construction. It's, it's part of the reason why I like the expanse so much is that it does, you know yeah goes into that in great detail. But I also like the uh, the detail. That at this point, you know, it seems new to us, but it is actually a very old and very weathered kind of uh, oh, yeah. installation and system where, you know, she talks about how like, you know, like, like the steps in front of like an old church or something like that, it, like things are kind of like worn away and it is like a now kind of a, a bit of a relic and something that's been used for hundreds of years and kind of shows the, the, the signs of it. 
Yeah, and they have those like those cool propaganda posters on the wall, and they have like they have handrails for people who before they had like the personal thrusters and everything. So yeah, it's like it shows that the world is like lived in, right? And it's like yeah. has history. Right. Yeah. Very cool detail. To me. All right. Well, we're gonna get into the meat of this episode, which is the fairy tales themselves. A warning here is that I don't know what I'm talking about, and these are all just guesses that I based off of stuff that I read on Reddit or figured out myself or whatever. And I tried really, really hard not to include spoilers because like I said, there are spoilers in here, but I will, I'm going to try to be careful about it. And I didn't put anything that I think is a spoiler document, but just fair warning. (laughs) These things are hard to decipher. So the first thing that I think is interesting to set up as part of the fairy tales is that it seems like Tian Ming has been able to observe Chengxin the whole time via Sofan. He talks about how he's been, he doesn't explicitly say it, but it seems like he he's seen her all along throughout all her journey. So he knows like the context of her life, you know, what she's done since for who knows how long, right? Presumably she's seen the whole swordholder stuff and the Australia stuff and just humanity in general in the, in the, in the intervening years. And uh, he obviously also has gained a lot of trust from the tribes of Laren somehow, or at least like they're get, like same way they kind of have reverence towards um, Lord G. It seems like they have some kind of admiration, or at least like giving him extra leeway where they normally wouldn't to Yuan Tianming to even let him speak to Chengxin because it seems to be dangerous um, because they have all these protections in place. So that's also interesting. But what I did is I kind of broke down each character um, or concepts that are in here and kind of had my idea of what they might be. And so we could just talk about them one by one. So the first one that I want to talk about is Prince Deepwater, which is the princess's brother who years ago was went to an, an island across the sea, but was never able to return. So this one, I think, is pretty confusing about who that might be referencing. It could be Yun Tianming. It might be Luo Ji. I, I'm coming to the idea that I think it's the ring because of the 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 descriptions of perspective and maybe like two island itself is a 4d space like we saw those earlier descriptions of 4d space kind of collapsing on itself getting to that island was part of the solution uh, or at least the initial solution to to the problem so that that's why it kind of leads me to believe that two island itself is like supposed to represent 4d and maybe not and maybe Deep water is not the ring itself, but 40 beings or you know something similar. Uh, because if you remember, right, like we got when we were in the 40 space, like they were talking about lots of perspective of the ring, like rarely changing in that ways that we're used to. Like it was really small and then all of a sudden just popped up. Uh, and so it doesn't doesn't follow the, law, the laws of normal perspective. <laughs> and so they they also said like uh, so regarding Princess Deep or Prince Deepwater. Uh, he was in exile when he was little. He took a boat to Two Island to fish, but when the glutton fish appeared in the sea, he couldn't come back. So he had to grow up on the island. So I, I guess I didn't analyze it that way. I didn't try to find parallels for each character, but I like, mm. I appreciate your point of view. Um, I, yeah, I didn't look at it that way, I guess. So when I initially um, read it, I couldn't make, I couldn't really parse the characters into like concepts and stuff. And also I think that each of these characters might be kind of fashioned after a character that we know, but also is representing a scientific concept of some kind. So it's like 
multi-layered metaphor each it's a complex metaphor essentially it's hard to kind of pinpoint exactly what it is you could be like this is this is evocative of the ring but it's also this concept and i was actually uh compelled to reread the section on the ring after this because there's so much language scattered throughout that portion of the book that comes up in the fairy tales like for instance when they're approaching the ring, they say, due to the extra unmeasurable dimension, visual judgments of distance were completely unreliable. The ring might as might be as far away as an astronomical unit or as close as the pinnace's bow. A similar thing happens when um, Isan tries to fight deep water in the end. He can't tell how far or close he is. Like a lot of a lot of the language in the ring just seems to echo so much in in, in this portion. Um, so I really do agree with you, Dan, that it seems to um, Prince Deepwater seems to have connections to the ring and four dimensional space. And also Tomb Island, uh, the ring describes itself as a tomb, which was also a place of refuge for higher dimensional beings, it seems. And the island is sort of a refuge for Prince Deepwater because he no one can get to him there and he can't come back. Right. So, yeah. and, and then the sea is like. Uh, full of these glutton fish that they destroy anything that comes to it. And so like that kind of reminded me of dark forest strikes, right? Like the, anything that they trying to cross that, that barrier, like, right. The, like these, the, these predatory beings that might be scattered about anywhere in there, since they're dark, you can't see them right? and they could strike at any time. Right. Yeah. I, I had the same feelings about uh, Prince Steve water. He was the only character out of the characters in these that I did make that like, because of the way he's sketched, that I pinned, you know, that that he that he was supposed to represent, you know, possibly the ring or these four dimensional beings. Um, and I think like, you know, dimensionality is, you know, plays a big part in these as well, not only with with uh, Prince Deepwater, but also with the painting. So, you know, I don't know if I don't know if that's a metaphor for shifting from 3D to 2D space or just what we kind of like learned prior with the ring in that like sh shifting down, you know, in dimensionality um, kind of leads to the death of that being in, in a certain sense. So I think, you know, both him and the whole painting mechanic ties in pretty deeply into the dimensionality of the universe as, as a whole. But yeah, I also, I also, I also saw, yeah, like the, the glutton fish as um, possibly representing the, the dark forest or the, like I had said before, maybe the, uh, the, the the mechanisms of the dark forest, and you know, he had the, the the fairy tale had tried to explain how the glutton fish got like came into being. So I think it's trying to drop clues about the the origin of it, what that origin yeah. is. Wasn't something that I was you know able to decipher here, other than it almost seems like it might be like a, a mistake or something gone wrong like you introduce a uh, a non-native species into an ecosystem that can't handle it and maybe that's happening at a cosmic level here yeah that, that i think that that was also a really interesting point too is yeah how yeah they came from a faraway land and then they something something happened and then those glutton fish were introduced to the sea and then they all started starting proliferating right and like eventually took over the sea and cut off all communication or cut off all travel between communication but yeah they, they were not able to go off of the the island itself to um to any anywhere else to the point where like they don't even know if there's anything else out there like the princess right. is like well there's only two islands there's like 
there's this one and the other one, right? There's nothing else. And the and they're like, no, it's like full of everything. So yeah, and it it uh, leads me to believe at this point that the whatever causes the dark forest paradigm the universe is in was didn't have maybe intentionality behind it and was maybe a big cosmic mistake or blunder by some progenitor race. That's the part of me that played all the Mass Effect games that is <laughs> there here. So then we have the other prince, Prince Ice Sand. And this one I'm not too sure about, but I was thinking, well, me, you know, Prince Ice Sand, he's kind of known for a ruthless appetite for power. When he was younger, he used to gather animals as subjects and like behead them if they if they disagreed. Uh, and he's willing to kill for he's, still, he's willing to kill his own family for for power. So I was thinking, well, well, maybe this represents Wade, or maybe this represents humanity as a whole. Um, I, I was thinking probably humanity is probably a better answer, only because like it seems like when we're really like, young, like we're you know we're, we're ruling our own kingdom with like without knowledge of like out stuff that's happening outside of our our little solar system. Uh, that's what got me thinking about that. It also seems to kind of um, fit with uh, representing humanity at a time when or at the time when um, we had the Earth Earth Trisolaris organization that was trying to um, basically cripple our own species for the sake of, um, I don't know, it felt like like ingratiating themselves in the eyes of what they used to call the Trisolarans the Lord. Yeah. Um, so it, it seems like they, it's almost like they had kind of made a deal with the devil, sort of. Hmm. Um, kind of like Prince Isan because he knows what he's doing with um with uh Needle Eye, the painter. Um, he knows that he's like kind of sacrificing his own family for power. Hmm. Yeah, that's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, I didn't uh, I I didn't take uh um Prince Isan as a a uh, metaphor for humanity. I wasn't sure if there's any like actual metaphors for humanity in here. Because again, you know, my my broad overview or theory of this is that is sort of a cipher trying to clue in humanity to the state of the universe or what's going on so i kind of took him as i don't know, maybe being the possibly the enemy of whatever race of beings the the ring is or you know mm. i mean any and again i'm drawing a much more like you know literal because he's the enemy of uh prince deep water here that uh i'm drawing a much more literal like connection here yeah, and it's a, it's a pretty. I mean, if it is supposed to represent humanity, it's a pretty grim representation of humanity too, right? Like, there's no redeeming qualities. <laughs> you know, deceitful and murderous, and you know, like uh, just looking for power. Like, sure, you know, yeah. But Tian Ming, this is also coming from Tian Ming, who doesn't right, have yes. good. You know, he also didn't. He, he was the one who wouldn't uh, pledge allegiance to humanity. You know, when they before they sent them, so. Right, that was going to be my yeah, be. next point. Is that maybe this is just him, his own personal view being filtered through here? I, you know, like in reading this, um, I, I sometimes had to pause and for, you know, like because I would forget that this is coming from him and not just necessarily yeah. like a good faith series of clues to help humanity. Right, and then it might not be that. Okay, well, next we'll go into Princess Dewdrop, who I think is, I don't know, I think this is maybe the easiest one. Is is you know, supposed to be Chengxin, uh, especially coming from the perspective of Yintian Ming, who presents like this really, like all like the birds stop chirping when she comes around, and you know she's really delicate. And the I think that one seems to be the most transparent, but 
I'm willing to listen to other ideas if there are. And I know Priya, you had some notes on on her. Yeah, it was um, it was so it was so apparent because uh, there's there's one um, element to it where he kind of like romanticizes her character the most, um, yeah. and I think that's coming from that old feelings that uh, Yun Tianming always has had towards her. Um, so I think that's the big tell that that's definitely Cheng Xin. And uh, I think uh, speaking to uh, Cheng Xin, finding that the character Princess Dewdrop is written to be like very delicate and she doesn't feel that she's that delicate. It's interesting that when she was about to uh, kill herself in the earlier part of this, um, of this section of the book, he, uh, Liu Cixin, uh mentions the word dewdrop. And he writes, if a world could turn into dust in the snap of a finger, then the end of a person's life should be as placid and indifferent as a dewdrop rolling off the end of a blade of grass. And mm-hmm. so it seems less that he's speaking to her delicate nature by by naming her dewdrop and more that more of like this placidness with which she's going to have to conduct herself going forward because now she has this new responsibility to kind of save all of humankind in a sense. Like that's kind of the position where she finds herself in, um, even if it's just as the vehicle through which his story is brought to all of um, humanity. So as you're talking about that, that reminded me of something or maybe gave me a thought. So I wonder if like, you know, Yun Tianming is constantly probably watching Cheng Xin all the time. So he would have seen that. So maybe he saw that was happening and then he instructed Sofan to say that they want to meet. And that's why it kind of happened kind of, it seemed like a little bit too, what's the word I'm thinking of? The, the qu- qu- yeah, too coincident- coincidentally, right? Like she's just about to kill herself and it's like a movie cliche to like, oh, right before that happens, like something happens to like change your mind, right? But maybe that'll happen because Yun Tian Ming is like watching her. Oh yeah, totally. Because <laughs> yeah. the Sofans are everywhere. So right. yeah, it stands to reason that that's probably what happened. And um, I should add that it's not creepy at all that he's always watching her. <laughs> <laughs> and they had another uh remember on um uh i think it was like blue space where the other guy was like always watching the other girl on the the other ship uh or i think they're on gravity and he was watching somebody the, the other like navigator on blue space which never goes right, anywhere yeah yeah so like we already have that that um that a degree thing kind of, of set creepiness up. in all men <laughs> yeah i mean that's like that's a common theme throughout the whole series right but yeah. <laughs> But yeah, like that that particular of, you know, kind of monitoring women through Sofan has uh, has been a theme, I guess. So yeah, I don't, I, I just put that together, but maybe I should have put that together earlier, but, but just uh, just clicked up with me. Uh, and, and another thing that I'm thinking of as, as also you're talking, like maybe, maybe Dewdrop is, is supposed to be like personified by Chung Xin, but maybe it's like the kind of opposite of ice sand where it's the better part of humanity, you know, they're kind of fighting against each other. You know, it's not just one person, but it's like humanity is more optimistic and exploratory spirit, that kind of thing. Right. Because we always have, um, after every major event, uh, he kind of always breaks it down into showing all the different factions and schools of thought that form around a certain conflict. So um, yeah, that definitely uh, makes sense. All right. Well, the next one we had was Captain Longsail. Uh, and that person is person that travels with um, Dewdrop to protect her. He's from the, a faraway land. The, the only thing I had, could think of was maybe it's supposed to represent AA. Um, she's from a faraway land and that she's from the future is, you know, 
comparative to Changxin and Yun Tianming. And she does her best. <laughs> she's she's probably the best, the biggest protector. She's a she she's the the dasher to Wang Miao of uh, to Changxin, where she just constantly protects her from from herself and her surroundings. Did did he even know who AA was? Did he know about her before? He wouldn't have, but he but he you know would oh, have seen her through through the sofans. Yeah. That that was, I mean, again, it might not be completely analogous to one person, and that might and not even be her. <laughs> like that was just my like trying to like put you know line them up on you know a spreadsheet or whatever. I'm <laughs> saying like this person is this thing, uh, and AA was the, the kind of first thing that came to mind. I think it's also because I really like AA, and you know, I think you know, <laughs> I think uh, she's she's a good protector and uh, companion of uh, Changxin. Wouldn't a, I, I kind of draw the comparison closer to uh, Aunt uh, Auntie Wide or? Oh yeah, her name was to AA. Um, Could be, yeah, because she that's was a good... the because she was the one literally holding the umbrella over her the whole time. Yeah, yeah, they kind of they kind of pushed off, but but yeah, right. yeah, that's that's a good one too. To me, um, Captain Longsail seemed immediately like he represented Tianming, um, because uh, there's a moment where um, she first uh, has a conversation with Captain Longsail and. Um, there are other there are other clues because he comes from Hershingen Hershingen Milsigen, um, that kind of clues me into that too because of my theory of what Hershingen Milsigen also might represent. But um, for now, uh, what what made me feel like it's uh, Tianming is the, uh, though they travel together for a whole day, she hadn't thought to ask for his name until now, which to me is sort of evocative of how. Mm. Tianming had meant nothing really to Chengxin, even though they knew each other in college and she could tell that he was kind of pining for her, but like she never really paid him any mind um, until it came to the point where uh, the staircase program had to happen. And then that's when they thought of uh, Tianming. But just that kind of that dynamic, that conversation that happens between them and also the romantic element that seems to unfold between them made me think that he's positioned himself as um, Captain Longsail, and also he also feels this protective feeling towards her. Yeah, and they they end up the story with sailing off, or you know, presumably going off to faraway worlds together, right? So yeah, that mean, I mean that makes sense too. Yeah, that was like the uh, another big tell for me that they end up together in the end. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I agree with that interpretation as well. That's very much how I read it. That he was the author's self insert here. The author of the author of the, <laughs> the, the, the story inside the story and the author inside the <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> so the next thing was, we talked about a little bit, but, but the gluttony. Um, so I think, yeah, I, I think that's also kind of clear that it's the dark forest space. Um, I, I think the more interesting part is that the sea can be pacified by the soap, whatever the soap is supposed to represent to safely cross it. Um, so that's kind of implying that there is some kind of cosmic safety notice, possibly saying you can use the soap to pacify the dark forest. Yeah, that's definitely how I read that. That uh, the soap or whatever it is is the uh, the key here. It's the and I don't know if it's you know a, a literal substance or what he's you know what the metaphor is here, but uh, it seems to be that like I just loosely interpret it as the secret or the, the perhaps like hidden aspect of the universe that humanity has not unlocked or come upon or needs to tech up in order to be able to understand or 
utilize in order to um, figure out how to navigate the dark forest or prevent you know any dark forest attacks on them i think the one clue that that i picked up i mean well one of the clues i picked up was that they talk a lot about the soap bubbles and there's a lot of other talk about soap bubbles previous to this around the four-dimensional pockets so maybe it's supposed to represent something like that like maybe using four-dimensional fragments to safely navigate the the dark forest uh, because they also talk about like, well, when they enter the four dimension, like the tri- the Tristellaris probe, it's not it's not dangerous, right? Because right. like a third dimension being is not dangerous to a fourth dimension being, because the fourth dimensional being can just you know reach in there and muck around with it and kill it, right? So maybe those that that's what that's supposed to represent. But also begs the question is if the uh, the Tristellarians can manipulate things up to you know eleven dimensions or so. It's like yeah. why have why haven't they figured this out and why are they still sitting ducks for right? You know, <laughs> yeah, like why why didn't they happen to you know? Come, I mean, like they should know about they know about dimensionality. Like they're able to unfold protons and to unfold right. and unfold protons. So why can't they use four dimensional fragments? Or protect against it. So, so the next thing is the umbrella. And I'll just say I have very little idea without I have some spoiler ideas about like what that might be, but like I don't I really don't know. <laughs> like uh th- that's one of the, the bigger mysteries. And even looking around online, um I, I, I couldn't find a really good answer. I found some interesting ones that again are more spoilery. I don't know. How how about how about you guys? Any uh, thoughts around the umbrella? I mean it's a it's a very it's a very integral part of the story, right? It's one of the one of the most integral parts of the story. So, the, I think figuring out what that is is going to be key to figuring out the fairy tales. I think, but I was never able to make the the definitive con- connection myself. Yeah, it's the aspect that you have to, of spinning it, and that if you don't spin it, it breaks down, and that it needs this constant maintenance or so. It seems yeah. to be the interesting part to it. I don't. I don't get the whole dragon part, you know, or what that's a metaphor for, but the mechanics of it seem like they're important. But beyond that, I don't know. In rereading it, I found it interesting that, um, so there's this abyss dragon who can't be painted. And um, the only other character who shares that same characteristic is um, Prince Deepwater. He also cannot be painted. And like abyss dragon is kind of a peculiar name. Like the only thing that I can think of as an abyss, what you would think of as an abyss in outer space is like, it made me think of a black hole, but then of course I can connect that to how that would be helpful in any kind of way (laughs) because black holes are generally not helpful. But uh, it's interesting that um, he could fly as well as swim in the deep sea and then deep sea would probably refer to maybe deep space and Mm. that the umbrella is made of this dragon's body parts. So whatever force the umbrella is wielding is probably whatever it is that prevents both the dragon and Prince Deepwater from being painted into a painting. So yeah, to me, that seemed like the biggest um, clue as to what the safety signal might be, but at the same time, the most confusing and impossible to decipher. I think the that reading of yeah that can be painted is 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 important, uh, and then the fact that the umbrella is made of parts of that dragon that can't be painted is also important. But I don't know. <laughs> and also the fact that it it's very specific about the type of motion that and and the type of materials that it has to be made of. Like if yeah. you um if you put any foreign material of any kind into the umbrella to kind of make it stay up by itself, then it breaks down. It doesn't work. And then if you spin it too fast or too slow, it also doesn't work. So 
yeah it's yeah. like he's trying to really tell you something but you can't figure it out <laughs> it's like <laughs> a really it's a really confusing riddle <laughs> right right and speaking of confusing riddles so we also have the snow weave paper and just painting paper people into pictures in general um so this is uh, this is gonna be a tough one to talk about the yeah i i don't know i guess i don't have a really good way to talk about it other than it's very consequential <laughs> for spoilery reasons you're saying uh yeah. that and also i just don't fully understand it i guess uh i mean i think it's supposed to maybe just represent dark forest strikes in general you know that, that, that's my that's my guess anyway like so maybe they're supposed to represent the photoids well yeah again i interpreted the whole painting oh i'm sorry you're talking about the snow, the snow weave paper yeah the paper and and just painting i mean because like they're kind of connected right i mean they are connected. yeah <laughs> uh, yeah i mean again yeah i just i took it as a metaphor for shifting down into a lower dimensional being you know pretty much fatal or effectively fatal for something that you know exists in another dimension like i i took it as a you know almost direct metaphor for the ring and those beings and the the sort of decay of their four-dimensional space essentially killing them whereas you know they they say they explain in the fairy tale that when the king is painted he essentially still exists in a certain sense like because he still like causes like an imprint in their bed or something like that as if he still exists but he is effectively no more he's just this you know just image on paper and exists in some sense but is effectively dead which is again, seems like a direct metaphor to the state of the ring or whatever those beings were. So to me, the biggest clue was um, how, um, again, comes from the chapter on the ring um, where it says, uh, like when I went back and read it, I, I um, these words stood out to be more um, after reading the fairy tales because they literally describe three-dimensionality as synonymous with fragility and viewed from viewed from four-dimensional space, it was like an unrolled painting defenseless. So there are parallels between paintings and what three-dimensional space looks like to a four-dimensional being. And um, there's also this detail about Needleye mentioning that he had to paint his teacher, Master Ethereal, first so that he would not paint me first, which reminds me of the nature of like dark forest theory, which is that those who strike do so to eliminate any civilizations that could pose a threat to them without really thinking about it. And they, I guess they just exploit a fragility that already exists. So it was kind of just evocative of, of those ideas to me. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And the, I also wonder like what the relationship is between why the paper can only be flattened by, um, by the obsidian from Harishika Moshigan. Yeah, I mean, like, uh, we can get into that part next, but I'm, I'm guessing that, like, that represent that's supposed to represent, that place is supposed to represent 40 space. So, like, why can only 40 space flatten this, this the, these papers? I, I, I don't know. And also, I kind of, um, in re rereading the, the ring chapter, I also found it kind of peculiar that the ring says that lower dimensional beings do not pose a threat to higher dimensional beings so like higher dimensional beings are not interested in striking out lower dimensional beings so it's kind of like confusing to me that it's almost like 
at times it feels like dimensional beings are kind of pitted against each other from this story, but then the ring says that that's not true. So that kind of threw me off a little bit. Yeah, I kind of saw it as um, like, it, it, it seems like there's something out there that wants to prevent a, a race or a civilization from achieving the fourth dimension or being able to um, manipulate dimensionality. And maybe that is the threat. And maybe that is another another 4D race, you know, wanting to keep 3D races. This terminology is sounding really goofy right now, but uh, from like <laughs> ascending into their space, you know, mm. uh, that's kind of how I took it. But yeah, I don't, uh, and I'm impressed that you're pronunciation of this but uh <laughs> yeah I, I i i don't know exactly what hershingen mosekin is <laughs> at this point other than it seems to be yeah like a, a linchpin of some sort or deciphering that or what that means seems to be the like rosetta stone to figuring out the rest of this uh collection of metaphors here so speaking of of pronunciation so i i learned the pronunciation by listening to the audiobook <laughs> again i you know one of my I, I read it the first time but i went back and listened to the audiobook um but i also thought that they also talked a lot about like how it, when they when they go to the deciphering part of it they talk about like oh it's actually just like literally like it's not like a chinese word uh they just talk about how it's like a uh, like literal characters that they're going over and it's very strange and that's why one, because they repeated a lot, and two, because it's just weird uh, that she remembered it. So I went back and looked what the Chinese translation was, and I have someone to pronounce it for me, because my Chinese is not great. So that's what, that's what it is in Chinese. So, yeah, like, my only idea was that it's maybe the fourth dimension. Like, I think, yeah, like, it's the faraway land, it's... Uh, the place that they need to get to for where they all like these cool items come from the uh, cool and dangerous items. I guess glutton fish came from there, but the soap also comes from there. Uh, long sail comes from there. Um, so uh, yeah, the, the, my, my main thesis, I guess, was that it's the, it's some, supposed to represent the fourth dimension. Yeah. Or just alienness in general. Like this is a concept that is mm. not easily understood from a human context, perhaps, or it's trying to communicate something that we don't have language for yet. So maybe that's why he had to like resort to this word or whatever, you know, like whatever it represents. But I kind of took it as something that is very alien um, and very, again, we, we don't have the language to describe it. So it is just this seemingly seemingly is gibberish at this point I, I took this as a way for him to introduce other elements so so we haven't heard all of the fairy tales that he told so there may be other clues and other fairy tales where he can use words which j just so he could use different types of language and not just all chinese words to be able to tell these stories just to keep the trisolarans off their off his tail or or also it could just be something that he did just to again let the let the earth like people on earth know that it's a it's there's another meaning in here not that that necessarily has a meaning but it's more like like the i don't know canary in the coal mine which is a sad analogy but really just when you hear this word it means that there's more than one meaning to this so I don't know if this gets explained to us further in this book, but that was kind of how I took it. It was just something 
if we heard all the fairy tales would would make more sense to us I think in the scope of the the narrative itself, um, I mean, in terms of metaphor, it's probably very loaded with meaning. But um, in terms of the narrative, to me, um, it seemed that a, uh, the storyless kingdom was kind of like a, a stand-in or a metaphor for the earth. And um, at times, it seems like uh, Hershing and Mosekin is like Trisolaris. Um because in having stories, they they kind of have all the information and and clues as to um, what's going on in the dark forest, and um, like they definitely have more insights than people on Earth do. It it just uh, represents the storyless kingdom. On the other hand, represents like Earth at a point where like before story came to Earth or before they got information about the nature of the. Uh, of the dark forest um and kind of like the clue to that for me was that every day countless ships passed between the storyless kingdom and Hershing and Mosigan, which could be referring to the ships that are coming from Trisolaris and also the flow of like information art and culture um from Trisolaris to earth uh seems similar to the way that um and this is all when Captain Longsail by the way is explaining to Princess Dewdrop the history between um, uh, the storyless kingdom and Hershing and Mosigan and how the storyless kingdom wasn't always without story. So it kind of seems like the two locations are kind of set up possibly as um, Trisolaris and Earth. That that was my initial reading. Yeah, I like that. I think that that definitely makes sense to me. Yeah, because all the the cool ideas and the, all the all the ones all the ideas that are going to save us potentially would come from there, but that's blocked off by by the gluttony and yeah also there's another uh quote that said in the very beginning of the story that said uh, and so story came to because it was just it used to be a story full kingdom and then it became and then it came to story less kingdom so maybe that's supposed to represent uh, the broadcast that's that started the the era i don't know that was the kind of struck out to me Right, because I think like um, it's it's described as being story full at first and then story less. It could it could represent how it was story full at the time when um, there was that uh, era where you know we were we as humans were constantly on edge about the fact that the um, Trislarans were coming. Um, and we first came to know and have awareness that we're not the only ones in the in the universe. And then it became it kind of went into an era of storylessness. It's kind of described as people became like agrarian during that time. It could refer to how the Trisolarans kind of like stopped our technological progress. Then people kind of became and then and then uh, the Black Forest theory was was out there, and then people kind of became like, it was kind of like an impasse. So people kind of became complacent and in a state of a lull and things kind of seemed to be like, you know, days kind of just passed by without any incidents. So that's the shift that it made me think of between um, from being story full to story less. And then it seems to become story full again, in a sense. Yep. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it's how it yeah, the these the, the yeah, the, this is again another one of those super wrapped metaphor double triple whatever wrapped metaphors that are going to be pretty hard to to fully get the idea from, but 
It's also one of those where you can you feel like you can get a little too carried away with trying to yeah. um, <laughs> unravel these multiple layers of metaphor. You're like, well, this represents this, and then this must be this, and then this must be this, and then you're just kind of like, and then in the end, nothing makes sense anymore. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, it's a good analog to uh, how uh, humanity processed this in the chapter succeeding this. Uh... Yeah, they just kind of gave up and like, I don't know, let's just build a big bunker. Well, yeah, they, yeah, again, they, uh, they express the frustration that, yeah, well, you can go off the, when there's so many, it, it's hard to, it's hard to cherry pick what's meaningful versus what's a red herring. But yeah, the storyless kingdom part was definitely the most difficult for me to kind of draw any real, any real like meaning or metaphor from. And I think Priya did as good a job as, yeah, as I think you could do with that. All right. Well, one last thing I want to bring up was the soap itself. So, I think we we talked about it a little bit, but some of the pertinent information here is that the it's light enough where it just float away by itself. It causes a lot of bubbles with just a small touch of water and doesn't fade away. Like he's 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 able to like cross the entire sea or the whatever however long it takes to get to Tomb Island by just using I think a third of the soap or something. And then the way that they collect it was also very interesting. They need to collect it on. Uh, you need to run as fast as the bubbles that catch them, and it requires special horses to catch them. So, so yeah, I think that's, I, I don't fully get it, but I think it's interesting. It, it seems to be, this is the mechanism to safely cross the dark forest, right? So however, whatever this mechanism is, the these things should clue us in on what that is. Yeah, I just sort of think of them as like, fourth dimensional wormholes or the ability to create mm. them you know and perhaps uh trisolaris holds the key i mean if they can create sofans i mean again why haven't they figured this out right right or why weren't they why weren't they able to save their own planet if they knew all this stuff yeah they still you know seem bound by light speed uh mm. and and the limitation you know three-dimensional limitations so they haven't figured it out or they're on the cusp of figuring it out. Again, it still kind of begs the question as to why Yun Ting Ming like knows all of this. I think in terms of language, this is also an interesting part where um uh Hershink and Mosik and Soap is described and he can't help but get into like very technical writing there. Um that sounds like you're describing like scientific concepts where he's like, yeah. if one were to um travel fast enough that they're at rest at the same time as the bubbles. So it was like, yeah, that's you know, at rest, you're you're describing like a scientific um, concept there. Um, and um, throughout the throughout the reading of these types of like very clearly scientific metaphors, I was really wondering if someone who's like a physicist would automatically know what this means, or like. <laughs> Am I am I just not able to like you know get beyond this barrier of like science? <laughs> yeah. Well, any any physicists that are listening to this show, please write in or guest host or whatever. Well, I'm happy to hear your opinions because I don't know. Uh, I took physics a lot of years ago, so <laughs> it kind of went over my head. I know we've gone for a long time talking about this. Uh, I could probably go for even longer, and we will on the spoiler cast. <laughs> I'm sure this will be another long discussion about fairy tales and even giving more context about what we know for the rest of the, the series. But any other final thoughts you guys want to bring up about this, either the fairy tales or this part of the episode or things you're looking forward to or uh, any thoughts at all? Yeah, I guess um, my uh, I really like this you know section overall. Um, however, this 
I, I feel like the cyclical nature of the story beats is kind of coming to bear again here. Um, and I, maybe this is just a frustration borne by my perspective that, you know, all, all, everybody else here has, you know, either been spoiled or has been, you know, read it, been able to read it at their own pace. And I unspoiled and, you know, reading this in chunks with these stopping points. But again, kind of Kind of with the, the the previous book and with the spell, you know, we we know that this is something that's this is significant, and it takes a long time for the narrative to wrap back around to understanding why Luigi's spell was significant. You know, um, and it, again, this book seems to be following a lot of the same story beats, just writ larger in a sense. And I guess my my, my slight frustration is like I obviously this. Uh, this fairy tale is going, you know, be very, very important, uh, you know, for the story. I have almost have the meta knowledge that it, can, you know, is is going to be important. But now we move into this chapter about the bunker project, and you know, we've seen this kind of time and time again in this uh, in in this series where we get these, you know, accounts of humanity's efforts and like various projects going, you know, going awry, and then. So like it it just has me wondering like how long like how, how much am I going to have to read to you know here to figure out get to the point where we learn why this is important you know why this uh why these fairy tales you know like were important because it feels like we're, to me like we're entering into another phase in the in the in the story where I'm going to have to read about how the bunker project was tried and failed. We should have just learned from uh, Yun Tingming's fairy tales all along. And maybe I'm, you know, incorrect there, but it seems like there's just sort of a pattern, you know, to the story that's making it feel a little predictable to me. Well, it's really hard for me to say, yeah. <laughs> but the good news is that we only have uh, three more episodes to go. So that's only like 200 and something pages. So yeah, you'll find out soon. I can tell you my 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 immediate thought after I finished reading these was um is Chengxin going to go into a room and deliver these stories directly to Lo Ji, who will decipher them in five minutes and tell us exactly <laughs> what we need to know. Cause he did figure out dark forest theory, so that means he should know exactly what the soap represents and the umbrella represents, right? <laughs> yep, Lo Ji is the answer. <laughs> yeah i was like why is he not the main character of this book too like i need more like i need i wasn't done with him yet all right well i think we'll wrap it up there again thank you very much priya for joining us for this episode it was great having you on it's great, great for your insights great yeah great to talk to you and look forward to talking to you more on the spoiler cast same here and thank you everyone for listening. Please check out rehydrate.space for release episodes, reading lists, pronunciation guide, and leave any comments by emailing us at rehydrate at fastmail.com or on Twitter at rehydratepod. And please join us next time for season five, episode five, Fate's Choice, covering the second half of part three and all of part four of Death's End by Leo Shin. <laughs>